ride with me in my foul life. Podcast world, what's up? Back at you, the Foul Life Podcast. Thank y'all so much for the downloads and subscriptions. Truly humbling. I guess that's the wrong thing to say. I want to stay humbled, so it doesn't really humble me to see the performance and the success of the Foul Life Podcast and its sister podcast, This Life Ain't For Everybody and Where the Payment Ends. But we truly appreciate the support, the attention to it. And I hope it's because of the diversity in topics and guests and the dedication to bringing you the best information and instruction and stories, whatever we can conjure up. I want it to be legit. I want it to be real. And that's exactly what the Foul Life podcast is. If we're not talking duck calling, we're talking duck hunting. If we're not talking duck hunting, we're talking goose hunting. If we're not talking goose hunting, we're talking about goose calling. It's pretty much everything wrapped up in one. And then you take it to the next steps of the culinary part of it and living off the land and our provider brand. That's kind of where we want to take it. The direction of today's show is all of that kind of wrapped up in one. Our guest today, you're going to learn that he hunted, started hunting kind of like I did later in life. I think he was 39. We'll learn more about this when he went on his first waterfowl hunt and he became absolutely obsessed. And then he took it to the next level culinary wise with eating wild game nonstop. And part of his wife's health and her history of health led to them eating nothing but wild game in their household. So we're going to talk to Mr. Joel Clayfish more pretty soon, but I got to talk to you about a couple of the partners that bring you the Foul Life podcast. First, I want to say thank you to Meat, Meet Your Maker, Made with Meat, processing and butchering and grinding and mixing and sealing. Their vacuum sealers are so legit. All of their different motors and sizes of grinders make it so easy to put wild game on your table. To put it vacuum sealed in your freezers for a couple weeks, a couple months, depending on when you plan on getting to it, look to Meat, M-E-A-T. You can find them on social media, websites, Meet Your Maker, Made by Meat. And I have so much pride and passion when I take it off the shelves, use it, clean it, put it back on the shelves. I can't wait to get to process and more and more with our meat partner, our meat family. Thank you so much, Meat, Meet Your Maker. Today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is also brought to you by rigid rigid industries own the night we have to see everything is better in the light what we do we travel we're accessing back roads county roads country roads dirt roads cornfields pea fields going through gates going through ditches going over small you know just tiny tractor bridges we have to be able to see then we flick the switch on our trailer and we can light up the land to see exactly where we want to be from a fence or a tree line our decoys are getting set up you don't everything looks different in the dark you want to light it up as much as you can and that's exactly why we depend on rigid for all of our lighting needs and our bumpers our light bars our fog lights our travel lights our trailer lights our headlamps everything that they build is 100 by far the best when it comes to led lighting so check them out rigid industries thank you to all of our partners that continuously support us at the foul life and banded brands and without further ado i got mr joel clayfish here coming at you live from his man cave right here in the great state of wisconsin he's wearing a pepperdine t-shirt he's got family that's went to pepperdine his wife is running for governor of wisconsin for 2022 how are you my man joel man i'm doing great doing great it's great to have you guys in town it has been yeah it's been a blast kind of uh, overrated <laughs> not when it comes to the food brother it's been good huh yeah heck yeah so the the whole lifestyle of hunting is pretty cool it's i hear you talk about your deer and your your you got some stands you have some turkey stories, and we even have eaten wild turkey already. Tonight was the second time I've had your wild turkey. We're going to talk about some of those recipes. But it seems to me like you're eating up with ducks and geese. Like, Is it fair to say that you would forget about deer hunting and turkey hunting, and you could just waterfowl hunt the rest of your life if need be? It's 100% fair. Absolutely. Why? What does it for you with the waterfowl? When you are out in the field and that sun starts to crack the horizon, you're setting up the decoys, you got to realize 99% of the people in the United States are missing that on a daily basis. That sunrise comes up, you see the shadows of the decoys, you start to realize if your decoy placement is decent or if you got to start moving things around. And you know the anticipation. It's all, isn't life about anticipation? The anticipation of what's to come. Uh, 
means you have the opportunity to hunt something. And you know what I always say to, to people, the most exciting thing about waterfowl hunting is you're fooling mother nature. If you're sitting in a deer stand, you're waiting for a deer to walk by. The difference with waterfowl hunting is you're setting something up. Your setup and your calling is literally fooling mother nature to get close to you. And when you have those geese 10 yards in front of the foot bag and they're wide open like Volkswagens, there's nothing more exciting. If your heart be- is not beaten at that point, there's something wrong. And the beauty of being able to take that and eat it for lunch or dinner or breakfast even sometimes, not much beats that. I love the part about the, I was thinking about it tonight, of you're setting up and you're kind of putting all these pieces of this puzzle together and you have this arsenal and you picture it, right? You visualize, all right, this is what I'm going to do. The wind's coming out of the southwest at 12 to 15, gusts of 18, perfect waterfowl and we got sunshine mixed with some clouds and we have geese in the area and a lot of them were on the x and you start thinking about the i love the anticipation of what could happen but what really gets me is that time of okay we're ready let's get in the blinds and then that word those words of all right boys load up or hey boys and girls load them up and then that point right there to when you're scanning every direction, <laughs> you know, there's a roost this way, you know, there's a river this way, there's an oxbow this way, there's a gravel pit this way. They could come from all these different directions because you, didn't, you can't follow them all off of the feed every day back to their loaf. So I'm sitting there going, where are they going to come from? Where am I going to spot that first line? And I kind of like, I don't really get competitive. I don't voice it, but I want to be the person that's in the game of like, all right, here they come. And you don't want to sound like you've never been there before, but it's hard not to. You're always like, hey, you want to be like, hey guys, get ready from the left right here. But it's always like, whoa, 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 get down, get down, get it. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like crazy. Is I've seen it so many times. And tonight I was still like so jacked up when I saw the first group of geese coming towards the X or the field we were in. That's the anticipation that I like. And then on top of that, what you just said is, yeah, the pieces of that puzzle that have to fit together. My favorite part's the calling and the dog work but i love the decoying i love the concealment and the blinds and all of those different parts of the hunt and your arsenal and your platform but man there's just something about knowing that we're not just waiting for something to walk by like you're saying or fly by we're setting up this like little booby trap of perfection right right? yeah and the next thing you know you could have 40 of them in your lap yeah and nobody ever wants to admit it but when you're sitting in the blind everybody wants to be the guy who spots them first nobody ever talks about it but everybody loves to see i see geese and and then there's the subsection of that of the guy who wants to say i hear geese so then you start getting in your head you think you're hearing them you think you're hearing them and then you do hear them and the anticipation of it so it is there's no doubt the competition's happening in the blind you're thinking to yourself i want to be the guy to spot them i want to be the guy to spot and i got them first. so overzealous yesterday i spotted them and it ended up being four sandhills <laughs> and i was like down ready to call and i'm like wow their wing beats are moving really slow yeah. really slow that uh that field that we hunted yesterday had a ton of potential in it I think that the number one reason that we didn't mop them up like we, that you could have is because of the wind. You just can't, without wind, waterfowl hunting is very, very tough. It's tough. It's tough because they're, I mean, if you get a wind that starts at seven miles an hour usually or so, they're going to land into the wind. And yesterday, I mean, it, that's the thing too about waterfowl hunting. You learn as much every time you go as you knew before that. And yesterday we switched the spread up and that helped us a little bit, but we realized we should have tucked under a tree, you know, with the blind work at first. Well, we learned that because they were spotting us over the top. Everything was floating in over the top again because the wind wasn't there so we didn't have the wind so they can circle as much as they want and you know what every group of geese all those eyes are looking down looking for something that isn't just right so you got to combine you've got to have the the hide right and somebody once told me waterfowl hunting when you think you're brushed in enough brush in more Uh, you've got to have the hide the decoy spread right in order to trick mother nature and set up that booby trap you have to have something that looks completely natural to that waterfowl that's coming in and that is the toughest part and that is why it feels so successful when you do succeed at it yeah it's a great point is that there's just i don't know what the percentages is of of success in waterfowl hunting there are people that can run up you know 10 days in a row of killing them but what really constitutes success but i will be the first to say that look at us the last two days we were on the x tonight and we made one vital mistake to our success 
And it cost us. And the thing about being a waterfowl hunter is that I questioned myself. I drove into the field. And I want your opinion on this, is that I go a lot of places, right? I get to go, and I'm very thankful and honored that somebody like you and Luke and this entire crew would roll out the red carpet, take time out of their lives, get us permission on their fields, knowing that we're hunting for the camera, which completely changes everything. They're taking days out of their season to on to, you know to 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 live up to what we are trying to get done right we try to give back as much as we can we want to make it fun we want to take care of you guys in a lot of ways but the bottom line is, is that there's waterfowl season comes and goes quick and when you dedicate this many days to this task we've had two subpar days as far as numbers go we've learned things we've killed some but not many my question to you joel is when you go into a place and you're hunting with people that are, have been so successful and they've worked so hard to acquire what you guys have, the network, the farmers, the permission, the, the spreads, the trailers, the arsenals, everything that you guys have is legit. I knew that we shouldn't be doing what we were getting ready to do tonight. But I have a hard time being that guy because I could easily come across as like, well, who are you? What do you mean? This is our spot. We've hunted here so many times. We know what we're doing. But I really wanted to tell them, like, we should not be setting up here. We're not going to get them here. This is going to be a freaking vortex of a black hole to these geese. They will not do it in here. I really knew they wouldn't. The hill was too steep. And then sure enough, after when we learned it, the guys are like, dude, they got up on the hill and they looked down and they're like, you can't even see the decoys. It's so dark down in here. So my question to you is like, how do you approach that? When you know that you have some knowledge that would help these guys, but they, you also understand and respect that they've done it so many times and killed them so many times, it's hard, right? Does that make sense? It makes total sense. But, you know, waterfall hunting is the art of negotiation because everybody in your group, everybody in every group you encounter and everybody in our group, uh, and we have a pretty tight-knit group, we all have our own. Uh, opinions of how a field should be set up and where it should be hunted, how it should be hunted, layouts versus A-frames, field edges uh, versus fence lines versus the middle of the field. Everybody has those opinions, and waterfall hunting is the art of overanalyzation. So at some point, you got to make that decision. Now, somebody like you with the experience you have uh, around the country and uh, your negotiation skills, at least what I've been able to see so far is, you know, it, it's tough, but it, it's really tough, especially in a situation where you're moving in, you're going into somebody else's territory. Um, but I do think that the decision uh, maybe should have been pressed uh, to hunt on the higher ground. You know, those geese, they love to land uphill. Now tonight you had a wind, you chose, chose to hunt the afternoon instead of the morning because you had some wind, which I think was the the right decision but those geese when they're when when they're coming over land and they're even higher they've got more time to look down into uh, into the spread analyze it and they really are leery of kind of going over the hill to get to a lower spot in the field they always seem to land kind of on the upward side of the hill and they land with their feet facing up i mean they got to bend them back a little further but it, it seems it seems like those tostito feet like to land on an upward hill blue tostito feet blue corn tortilla chip feet That's it's right, funny yeah. that you say that because a lot of scouting comes back to me where we'll send a lot of rigs out we're in saskatchewan or alberta and they'll be taking pictures or they'll be taking notes right of what they're seeing and I always tell people, one first thing in scouting is that you always go back and put your A field to bed and make sure that they didn't get chased out of there by a hawk or coyote. And there's a lot of things that go into picking which field you're going to hunt. But a lot of waterfowl hunters, in my opinion, make this mistake is that they go in there and they see the birds where they're at at that moment, but they didn't necessarily see them coming into the field. And they're like, well, they're down this low. Well, they walk down. The geese yeah. can walk. <laughs> okay. They can walk as easy as they can fly. So they will land high and walk low to avoid the, their feathers being, you know, blown all over the place by the wind. Yeah. Very rarely do they land down in a hole. What I like to do is, if you can picture this listening audience, is you have the hill and what we would call the, what, the apex of the hill on the top. Is that the apex? Yeah. If you could picture yourself with the wind at your back and you're at the slant at the very top of the hill where it starts to fall off 
and you can put your ground blinds in that position to where you're not like laying on a vertical angle to where you're uncomfortable and have to have unbelievable abs like I do to sit up and shoot these. That was a joke, Joel, to shoot these birds approaching. You kind of want to be laying at an angle to where you're looking up a little bit at the, 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 the apex of the hill and you kind of run your decoy spread from you you know, the big bulk of them down by you to where you can tell the geese walk down there. And then you kind of finger them up to the higher point to where those incoming approaching geese or ducks, they're like, okay, I see them. They're on the apex and they're not scared anymore. They'll come to gun range because they know that those geese have landed there and walked down off of that knob to get out of the wind. I hope people, I hope that makes sense to people. Yeah, it makes total sense. And, And remember, I mean, geese uh, and ducks for that matter but geese in particular they are looking for predators when they land and you tell me where you get a better view of the predator you get a better view of potential predators on the top of the hill where do predators come from the bottom of the hill the swallows they come from the marshes the field edges the wood edges the wood lines the fence lines that's where predators come from when they're coming in for that final landing the last thing they're looking for is where those predators are going to come from and that's going to make them leery but they're also you know they're also smart enough to know that uh, they can land on the hill and take their advice from the other geese that have walked down the hill to a, maybe a, a wet spot or a spot they can get some water while they're eating uh, so they'll look at that ahead of time as well and they'll realize that they can walk to where they need to go and that's a really good point a lot of people who look at a field and they see where the geese are that does not mean whatsoever that's where they landed Right. And if you're not there to see where they're landing, then you're kind of doing yourself a disservice of, well, we need to hunt this field tomorrow. Well, maybe we need to take another day. Take your time and let that field build. Um, it, there's some there's some elements to that. You don't want somebody else to go in and get permission. You don't want the landowner to change their mind. Or There's a lot of things that go into some people only have one day a week to hunt, right? So um, I look at it like the mistake we made tonight was so evident the first flock comes out right they're coming off the roost here they come they literally do it like they read the script but they didn't finish i'm saying they approached the field entered the calling zone that i call it to where they can hear our calling and literally were like i was looking at the guys going holy smokes this is going to be unreal they were balled up like just losing elevation talking back to us and all of a sudden, they didn't like flare like they saw a coyote or the boogeyman, but they really went, no, no, thanks. That ain't us. That's not what we would do. There's, there's no way all of those live geese would be that close to this when they have all of this. It's kind of like, well, this isn't a, this isn't a 10 acre field. This is, I don't know how big these checks are here, but there, it was at least probably at least 40 acres. Yeah. This, this section, it's a big cornfield. And then. Not one group, and I'm talking at least 20 groups of geese came to this field tonight. Not one group after the first group checked up on us once. They came over the hill. They saw the, They heard our calling. They saw our flagging, and they literally reverted or diverted and said, something's wrong. Now, I don't know how many hunters are in this area. I don't know how pressured these geese are. have no idea. I know that this landowner said that his field has not been hunted once this whole year. He even went as far as saying that, Nobody's ever asked us to goose hunt. What are you guys, idiots? (laughs) We've heard turkeys, hunters, and deer hunters asking for permission. But I I, I literally look look back at it, Joel, like, why didn't I just say no? I I don't want to piss anybody off, but maybe they'll just be like, yeah, he's right, let's do it. But the other part of that is that these guys are like, well, this is where we can hide the cameras. Because I made it very evident that this is very difficult to hide cameras. And without knowing these landowners... You, a lot of times we dig in with ground blinds and get our camera guys real low and then have a tripod spread out with some burlap and netting over it. That's what you need to do to to really kill these birds. This Is this considered the late season right now at this time in November for Wisconsin? Uh, this is mid-season. This but, is mid-season. Uh, this is typically what we call this kind of the mid-season lull because you've got your birds that are stale and they're tough and they're used to being hunting, hunted and we haven't gotten that late push from Canada yet. We need that. This we need week. that. Yeah, we need some cold wa- weather to bring that late push. But you made a couple really good points. One, one is that when you're shooting, shooting for a show and you've got cameras 
cameramen uh, who are out there who need to get the shot and they're moving on the birds. The camera's moving. Uh, you want to put, you know, you, your hide is quintessential, especially on tough birds. And so that does make a huge difference. And a lot of times I think it's that we let intellect get in the way of instinct intellect over instinct isn't a good thing because geese are nothing but they're not the smartest birds they're instinctive so a lot of times we will talk as hunters and we're using we're attempting to use intellect for our setup versus comparing it to what's the instinct of the bird going to be and if you do something that's not their instinct uh, you're going to end up with a goose egg no pun intended which is what happened because their instincts told them don't go down in that valley what would you say you made a comment the other night that is it a 90-day season in wisconsin Uh, yeah i think it is a 90-day season we go into january this year and you and luke missed four days of the 2020 season (laughs) yeah that's right okay so that's kind of psychotic it's a little that's that's crazy right but it's that's what it is because you can't have them back you can't be like that's right um what would you uh, first of all I know that you're you're a pretty level-headed guy with what you do for a living and what you've done. I don't know you very well. I think you're badass, but your success isn't based on a, a limit. I can tell that that's the personality you are. But how much? How what percentage of those ninety days? Okay, let's say you hunted eighty-five days out of ninety. Okay, that's a lot. Okay. Yeah. How many days were successful, if you had to guess, looking back on last year? Well, screw that question. This year, you've hunted a lot of days with Luke and the guys already. Yeah. You guys have been hunting when? Since when? October what? September 1st. September 1st. That's the early season. Yeah. What's the limit in the early season? Five per person That's per day. That's crazy that it was constant because there's a lot of geese here. It's awesome. I mean, you have 15 bird days in freaking some states early. You would think it'd be a little bit higher, but five is awesome, and now it's three in the regular season. Yeah. How many days have been successful this year? Oh, man. 50%? Oh, 70%? So 85%? So this lull, we're hunting geese that have been here for a while. Yeah, we're hunting tough geese right now. Damn it. Tough geese and hiding the camera crew is tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy because I'm picking the states that I know that, you know, that will I know the success has been there with panel blind camera hides, Kansas, Nebraska, Arkansas, speck hunting, Oklahoma, um, Texas. It's crazy to think that we could not decoy birds to a tree line. But where I'm going with this, Joel, is isn't it crazy to you? Like I've decoyed thousands of Canada geese a lot of lessers, but a lot of graders too in Kansas. Crazy amounts. Oklahoma's that way too a lot of the times. You can you can get a lot of good, and I'm talking trees that are 30 feet tall. Like there's no way geese would work into this, right? The boogeyman's right there. Ducks, they're a little bit easier with spinning wings and dry field hunting ducks, but it's crazy that in some states, people look at you like, are you an asshole? Like there's no way this is going to work. In Kansas, you could set up a panel blind made out of chicken wire and burlap, have two little buddy heaters in there, have a grill cooking breakfast with lawn chairs <laughs> and a freaking stereo system playing. And when you turn the stereo down, you see geese and they will finish right out in front of you with a, with a 10 man crew out there. I've seen it done hundreds of times, but up here, it's like, I don't know if you could really tree line hunt. Can you edge hunt for geese up here? Do you see a lot of success with it? And what does it take to get that success? Well, number one, you can, uh, you know, and you, like you said, success is measured in 8 million different ways. Uh, in Wisconsin, more Canada geese per capita are killed in Wisconsin than any other state in the country. Are you serious? Yes. Um, but then here's the other. Why? Just because there's not as many hunters? Well, it's just a fantastic flyway here. We've got the Mississippi River on one side and the Great Lakes on the other side. This is an absolute, you know, very few states in the country can you hunt some of the greatest Canada goose hunting in the country along with puddle duck hunting and you'll get sea ducks on Lake Michigan, Old Squaw. I mean, it's it's unbelievable uh, hunting here in Wisconsin. But what that means is that the, the geese that are moving through here are getting hunted quite a bit. There's a there's a lot of waterfowl hunting in wisconsin and you know we're 
continually trying to proliferate it, get more people into the sport. And I think that's happening. And, and shows like this and people like you are the ones who get, you know, somebody to try it who's never tried it. Uh, but I think that tree line hunting uh, is real tough. Um, I used to go sit in the middle of a field with nothing on but a ghillie suit. And that, I mean, then they were, they were right at my feet very often. I think in Wisconsin, the number one, you know, predators we have in the Southern region are coyotes and the num you know, the wolf population is so uh, high up North that tree lines get really tricky here. That's kind of their only fear of a predator is on those tree and fence lines. We have a lot of successful hunts on tree and fence line hunting, and it, usually it's um, shooting them as they're floating over the top of our heads, um, much less kind of finishing in the decoys toward you. A lot of times it's that, that Let me pass. ask you that real quick. You make a great point right there. I don't want to interrupt you, but in you, you started hunting later in life at 39. Yeah. I have that year right, right? Yes, sir. Are you satisfied with what you just said about the over the head? Are you, I know that you're, we're going to get into your cooking. We might have to do part two of this because I know we're getting ready to have an awesome dinner. Tyler Stark and Traeger have supplied us with the new Traeger provisions tonight. People, you got to look into this. We're having ribs and chicken tonight. Everything included with sides, macaroni and cheese and potatoes, everything. But... We might have to go into part two with Joel on this through the next couple, couple days while we're in Wisconsin. Are you okay with that? You could go to a sporting clay range and say pull and have a target, a clay pigeon, float over your head and pow and see it explode. Are you okay being, are you a perfectionist when it comes to waterfowl hunting? Or do you just want that dead bird to put into the Traeger or the Crock-Pot <laughs> or however other, whatever apparatus you're using? Are you okay with shooting them over the top of your head? I'm 100% a hybrid between both of those. I'm definitely not a perfectionist when it comes to waterfall hunting, but I think the joy and satisfaction, but I'll say on the other side of it, I'm not somebody running around uh, adding up how many times we've gotten a limit. Uh, the hunting experience for me is about everything from the decoy setup to that sunrise to those you know, boots down in the decoys. There's nothing more satisfying than that because that is the ultimate fooling of mother nature. You have ultimately convinced that wild animal to come within 10 yards of you and land in front of you. That is the most exciting thing. Um, at the same time, I don't have I don't have a problem if uh, you know the wind if there's no wind on a day and they're kind of floating ten feet over your head uh, and and you're taking a shot at them. I don't like sky busting whatsoever. Don't support that because you're going to put a lot of pellets into a lot of birds that are going to fly away and they could die later and you'll never find them. And ethical hunting is incredibly important. Uh, what you shoot you want to end up on the dinner table it's also why uh, there's nothing i hunt that i don't eat um, i'm a strong believer in eat what you kill uh, so i'm not certainly not a perfectionist uh, under any circumstance but i do not measure the success of a hunt on whether you got a limit or not when you say eat what you kill you would agree with this statement i would assume which i know assuming can do what you heard so many times in your life make an ass out of you and me but is it fair to say that canada goose canada geese i love when people call them canadians they said that today and i'm like if you kill the canadian you would go to prison but <laughs> they're terrible to eat would you agree with this statement that is the most uh <laughs> misaligned isn't it crazy? Misunderstood statement. Canada Goose is one of the best table fares of all wild game, hands down, game over. Why do you think that? Not that not, I'm not saying that, oh, because I've had it taste good so many times, but what makes it a good table fare? Is it the texture? Because they have a different texture than a speck. Is it the fattiness, the oils in it? Um, there's not a ton of fat in a, in a goose. There's oil in a goose because of their feathers and their migratory means of... of transportation we should say they do have some oils that keep their feathers lined the right way and insulated the right way but what why do you say that they're because you have elk um jim shockey told me that he can make a bear roast taste better than anything i could cook in the waterfowl world i said you're absolutely out of your mind he said bet he said bet let's bet okay then you have moose which i'm not a big moose fan you know what i'm not even a big bison fan i like a bison steak okay i don't like bison hamburger at all 
you know, ground, ground bison. I don't, it's not my favorite, but goose, Canada geese, speckle belly geese in the rice in California, the skin, the searing, the reverse searing, the rendering. It's amazing. You're making me so hungry. But Canada geese. Yeah. What makes you say that statement? Versatility. Because there's so many things you can do with it. Versatility. You can take a Canada goose. You can put it in a sous vide overnight. You can slice it as paper thin as you can, flash sear it on both sides like a piece of ahi tuna and serve it up and somebody would swear they're eating the finest piece wait a minute, wait of a minute. Kobe This is beef. not in the sous vide though. This is, you're talking about just a high heat griddle or a skillet. Yep. Like you could go on a Traeger Ranger and get your 400 degree and you're telling me that you can sear it both sides like a piece of ahi tuna with some pepper, with some dry rub, yep. whatever. And then what? I actually, when I make it, I, I uh, put it in the sous vide overnight. Then I th- thinly slice it, and then I'll put uh, I'll put sesame seeds around the outside, and uh, dip it in wasabi and teriyaki sauce, just like sushi. Sushi. It thin, is too. Th- I, I assume very thin slice. Thinly sliced. Yeah. Like butcher, that, butcher, butcher slice or no? Knife I cut slide. it with. I cut it with a knife. I mean, you know, as thin as you can, like a thin slice of ahi tuna. Are you are you tenderizing it before this process? Well, that's pretty much what happens in the sous vide. Okay, but, so you're taking it from the sous vide to the to the reverse sear. Correct. Yep. Hundred. We should try that this week. Let's I do will it. be first to admit I've never had Canada goose in a sous vide. I've had deer. I've had a bunch of different ducks. I've never had Canada goose. Uh, Mitch Petrie, who is VP of programming for the Outdoor Channel, loves Traegers, but he also loves his sous vide. He he, he he's from Minnesota. He took me on my first muskie trip. Um, the fish of what do they call it? Ten thousand casts. Ten thousand casts. Yeah, it was like three, and we had one figure eight, and at the boat, and we lost him. But gall was it cool? They're cool. Um, alligators, northern alligators. Yes. Um, but he bought me one. It shows up in my on my front porch. He's like, "You got to do this." I'm like, "You just bought me a sous vide." I love them. They're amazing. They're really really cool. But Canada geese, it's like, man. It gets such a bad rap, and I've never, ever, and I mean this. You want to know one of the coolest recipes that just came to mind? Grant Kuyper's Northern Saskatchewan. Pickles Canada Goose and jars Canada Goose. He does a jarring method that is unfreaking real And then he does a buffalo wing kind of method of, of frying with no batter. He fries with batter. He jars, he pickles. He's got so many unorthodox ways because they kill so many Canada geese up there. I mean, this is in the land of freaking huge lake trout, walleyes, pike, like some of the best eating fish that you can have. I know that pike's different because of the bones, but people are scared of it, but it's really good if done right. But he's he takes so much time with his Canada geese and then he serves it for appetizers before a meal at the lodge. And you're just like, Holy shit, this is good. Yeah. Every bite. I've never, sounds I, don't, awesome. I don't know if I've ever had a bad bite of Canada Goose. I, I really don't know if I have. I'm telling you, it's so versatile. Sometimes we'll grind it. Uh, we'll take beef suet instead of pork, and we'll grind it with the Canada Goose because then you don't have to cook it all the way till it's dry. You know, you don't have to cook it well done. You can cook it medium rare. So I'll take it and I'll grind it with uh, beef suet and then patty it out and throw some nice provolone in the middle of it pinch it together and make pizza burgers with it on the traeger it's to die for what's the meat cooked as it's just it's canada goose i know i know the meat i know we're talking about canada goose but what was the process of the just the was it it's not ground though yeah no grind it i'll grind it with i'll grind it with beef suet so beef fat oh beef fat because if you grind it with pork you got to cook it to a higher temperature and then it to well done essentially but if you grind it with beef suet with beef fat then you don't you can make it medium medium rare you you just cook it you put it on the traeger at a higher uh, temperature and you cook it like you're cooking a burger and right as soon as you start to see that provolone ease out of the creases in the side of the burger it's done put a little bit of uh, grandma tiafalo's pasta sauce on the top of it oh man is that your grandma's last name or is that a brand that's name? my grandma's last name she's she's long gone but my mom uh, uh who's also 100 percent italian she's got the recipe down i want yeah. to learn that recipe the it's, pizza burger 
Well, um, she'll have to come over and tell you then because I know it's not written. Well, anymore. I've already eaten her pie crust with your Canada goose pot pies, which the the I knew the goose was going to taste good because I showed you in the provider cookbook that I've done the pulled goose yeah, for a lot yeah. of years. It's it awesome. was taught to me by a guy from Michigan, Joe Robinson. We were in Ontario. I told you that story. But the one thing that blew my mind the most about the recipe was I've never done gravy like that. And I was so impressed with how that gravy turned out, The just the entire process, which was really simple and quick. Yeah, simple. But gosh, did it turn out perfect. And then to throw in the peas and the carrots, people like Tyler Stark, he may fool you, but that dude eats a lot of good meals. They cook <laughs> Traeger meals four days a week or five days a week at headquarters. The best pitmasters in the world come in and out of there like it's woodwork and they're cooking nonstop. And he's like, dude, that can of goose blew my mind, blew my mind. He, he was talking about it again today. So I've had that. I've had her pie crust. I wanted to try these pizza burgers. I want to get into, I want to have another podcast. I know that we're, that we've been doing these quick little excerpts here in, in Wisconsin because as you can see, we're just nonstop. We go, go, go hunt, film, do this, then cook, then set up, then Whatever, but I want to get into what you did for a while with with the wildlife administration laws. I want you to be thinking about this of the intimidation factor of waterfowl hunting. I've been talking to a lot of people because everybody's like, we got to get new people involved. We need new blood in the pipeline. We have to have the next generation. Well, there's a lot of new hunters in hunting. Because of COVID, there's a 790% growth in fishing license buys. Waterfowl hunting is undoubtedly, in my opinion, the most difficult. Now, you have to be in great shape to walk a mountain and kill a doll sheep. Hell yeah, you do. But I can get in that shape. And then I'll get 300 or 500 yards with my with my 30-06 or my 300 wind mag or my short mag or whatever I mean, and I'll smoke him. I'm not saying it's easy. Please, please, people, don't write in and say you're an asshole for saying that big game hunting is easy. It's not easy. But waterfowl hunting, with the financial commitment of having the right arsenal, on top of that, now to be the best at it, you really should learn how to call. You can hunt with somebody that does, but it's much better if you can call yourself ducks and geese and be proficient with it. Then all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, I don't have a dog. Not any dog will do. You could say that any dog will do, but they won't. I don't want a squealer. I don't want a breaker. I want something that performs day in and day out as a conservation tool. And then on top of that, Joel, you have all the laws. And on top of that, you have federal laws and state laws, state agent laws and federal laws. I've had game wardens come up to me at a boat ramp to check my bag limit or to check my license and tell me you have too many redheads. And I'm like, sir, those are gadwalls. Like they literally yeah. did not even know how to identify the duck themselves. And they're a state agent game warden. Now, game wardens are, are whatever you want to think about them. They do their job and they've, they're, they're, they have a lot of bad rap because they're on edge a lot of the times because 100% of their confrontations probably include a firearm. So they're really like kind of, you know, whatever. My point to you, Joel, is... There's a freaking reason why that there's four million, four and a half million turkey hunters, 14 and a half million, 14 million, 700. I don't even know the number, but it's almost 15 million deer hunters in the country. There's more predator hunters in America than there are duck and goose hunters. There's a lot of factors that tell people on top of that, you got the cold weather, the ice, the early mornings. I want you to be thinking about this as we end this podcast, the Fat Life podcast. Thank you all for listening. I want to come back with part two. Talk about some of your experiences of laws that you helped getting written, getting bills you've helped get passed. But I really want you to get raw if you can, if you're legally binded to. And I know that you have politics in your family and all this. But I want to talk about the laws of waterfowling and why it's so intimidating and why people are like, you know what? I'm not even going to try. I can't tell a yeah. freaking blue wing from a freaking hen redhead. And I can't tell this from that. And then you're telling me I got to do it when they're flying. Then you're telling me I got to use steel shot. Then you're telling me that I that I can only shoot two hen mallards, but they were party hunting. We don't know who hit what. There's all these laws that go into it. How do we get new people introduced to this lifestyle? I don't consider it a sport. I consider it a culture and a lifestyle. How do we get new people involved and give them the confidence that, hey, it's really okay to be a duck hunter. You can do it. I think it's really difficult. I don't mean to sound soapboxy or 
oh my God, dude, this is a pity party. It's we're, 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 we're a brain surgeons here. We're not by any means, but come on. It's difficult. In my opinion to be successful. Is this fair to say? Well, I'm looking forward to that because there are answers to each of those questions. And frankly, one of the really exciting things about Wisconsin is that we have some of the answers to some of those questions and we've literally been working on them and we're starting to see them succeed because the bottom line is it is too intimidating. So many people can say, I don't have to question what type of whitetail deer is walking into my, in, you know, below my stand. And there are so many laws that govern specificities of waterfowl hunting. You have different bag limits for different species. Uh, you can have four mallards, two of which, as of this year, can be hand mallards, but you still have a bag limit of six. So all those things are entirely uh, difficult and critical, and you need to study. One of the things that I'm super excited about, you know, I mean, you know that I spent time in the legislature, 14 years in the Wisconsin House of Representatives, and I actually was the chairman of the Natural Resources Committee which was a dream come true for me. And we took that book and we started reducing regulations in it. But one of the most essential things we did was pass the mentored hunting law in the state of Wisconsin. And what that says is that you don't have to know everything and have gone through all these courses. You can be a mentored hunter. You can go with an experienced hunter and as long as you're within arm's reach of them, you can hunt with them. Having never gone through uh, the hunter safety course and gotten your things, um, and we're hoping, and I, we're not hoping, I've seen it. I take mentored hunters every year by the dozens. And the, you know, and Republican, Democrat, you know, it doesn't matter who you are when you are exposed to firearms in the way that they're meant to be used and you're taking something from the field to the table, you're going to convert people. I have a friend of mine, you know, I, I was a Republican legislator. He was a Democrat staffer. He never held a firearm before. His name's Peter. And, uh, I took him, he said, took him, shot a gun with him the first time he, he got comfortable with that. And he said, do you think you could ever take me waterfall hunting? I took him out the first time we had some geese come in on a river situation. The look on that guy's face, he called me at the beginning of this year and he says, if you ever got room, please, I'd love to come again. So I invited him. He shows up. He's fully decked in waterfowl clothing, head to toe, banded, banded clothing, head to toe. He's got his semi-automatic shotgun that he bought. Benelli. He's got his, uh, uh, Traeger hat on <laughs> black cloud ammo <laughs> <laughs> and this guy who uh, philosophically politically he and I probably agree on nothing in fact he you know he works for the administration that my wife is running against and he and I are friends and share the field together and he never knew what it was like but through the mentored hunting program in Wisconsin he's now got his hunter safety let me ask you this real quick did hunter. he ever in his in his in his um, tenure in politics did he ever try to outlaw hunting or the second amendment right in the state of Wisconsin no. did he, he wasn't he wasn't on any of those any of those kind of kind of uh, surgeons I would call it of like hey we got to get this done and then all of a sudden he got turned the other way no. Let me just say this. We we started the Sportsman's Caucus. Uh, Paul Ryan was in Congress at the time, and he had the uh, um, Congressional Sportsman's Caucus. And they called and said, Joel, would you like to start one for the state of Wisconsin called the Assembly of Sportsman's Caucuses? We started it. On our first event, we had shooting tables set up. We had 22 people who had never touched a firearm shoot a firearm for the first time in their lives. And I can tell you there are people who were in that. He was one of those people and he now is a, a, so a cool. died in the wool hunter. Those people had the time of their lives and they got to see a side of it that even some of them philosophically were completely opposed to who are now saying, this is good. This is something good. The second amendment right is something good that should be exercised, utilized, it's, it was, it, I don't know how many guns you have here, but I have a lot of my pad and my different properties, right? None of them have ever did anything bad. No. We have to start voting with scientific data. We have to start using our emotions along the same lines of what you just talked to Joel. And I love that story. I'd like to meet this man because we work with UC Davis, a very liberal campus in California, yep. Berkeley and Davis. Yep. 
they have what you call it's out the, by Pepperdine. Yeah, they well Davis is that's more south, but this is Bay Area mainly, a little bit north of the Bay Area, but they have what you call the junior senior in the field program where they take applicants and I think it's up to 40 and obviously seniors get first billing because they probably got said no to their junior year, but they, the California waterfowl association takes them out to Paul Bondersons. He made a, a great living in Silicon Valley in software. He has a place called bird Haven and he opens up his entire lodge and property to these college juniors and seniors They've come from non-hunting, non-Second Amendment, non-gun-owning families. They take them out, and they're straight up honest with them. This is what to expect. Are you interested? Yes, I am. It's part of the biology pro, uh, protocol at UC Davis. They come out, shotgun safety, everything from loading to shooting, cleaning, hunting, calling, blinds, concealment. They teach. It's pretty, pretty cool little workshop the first day. They go into butchering processing and preparing wild game holly heiser who's a who works in cwa's headquarters in, in roseville california she gives a whole deal her and her her boyfriend hank shaw he's got some great cookbooks duck duck goose and deer deer moose and they are buck buck moose duck duck goose and buck buck moose hank shaw's a hell of an outdoor uh wild game chef they give a whole seminar tutorial on how to render fat and everything that's cool 80 percent retention that's awesome. 80% of the students that go out, I've been on it twice. I remember Mandy, she comes out with me, kills her first sprig. She loses her mind. She's holding it up. I'm getting it mounted. She's calling her friend. She's what these kids do these days of Snapchatter and, and ticker tack or whatever, TikTok and all this shit. She's doing it all. She is so excited. 80% retention of second year license buyers out of this awesome. program. So if you think about it, it can work. Yes. 10% of us Americans hunt. 10% of us Americans, I shouldn't say us Americans, 10% of Americans are anti-hunting. 80% are either unaware, uneducated, don't give a shit, or just kind of wondering. They're kind of curious. And you saw the uprise. I had people come into my house, hey, uh, you got any meat? We can't get it at the store. COVID's got all the beef sold out. Yeah, here, take this. What, what is this? Wild turkey. What do you mean wild turkey? Well, I was in Montana and this Miriam's turkey came in. He fans out and like it gobbles and all. And he's like, can I go? I'm like, yeah, let's go. It, it raised a lot of questions. So I want you to think about that. When we come back to part two with you, Joel, I want you to think about why I, I really have an issue with stories I hear of intimidation factors of law enforcement where I think it should be the other way around of an education process and not an intimidation process of nobody wants to break the law. I don't want to. Now, if you're a poacher no. and you know, you're baiting and you know, you're shooting over the limit because you're quote unquote mad at him. Cause you didn't have a good year last year. I don't want you being a hunter. Right. Don't be a bad steward of this Correct. lifestyle, but it, most of us don't want to break the law. No, we don't, but I don't want to be intimidated with a badge. Hmm. I want to know how do we get closer and I'll use us as a great example. We've had game wardens come after us. They want to bust us. I don't want you to bust me. I'm not going to get busted. I don't break the law on purpose. If, I, if you could prove that I've done it on accident, okay. But why not use people to be voices and ambassadors and mentors to get people involved because so many people are scared of it. Now, I want you to think about this and your experience in the legislature in the House for 14 years and how can we work together with different states and agencies and the feds across the country. Cause this is a big deal to me. This is a big gray area to me of party hunting. You stand up and we're shooting and like, where do you put your birds? Well, they're greater Canada geese. You can kill eight Canada geese a piece in Oklahoma. Where do you put those birds during the hunt? Well, you got to have all of your birds by your feet. You got to have your own separate pile for your officer. I can't move in here. They're big. Well, can I put them out in the spread to look like decoys like a lot of outfitters do? Can't do that. Is that illegal? It's done all the time. But you can't leave the field unless you got your birds with you. Transportation, all of this stuff that goes into these pictures. You, got to, you see all these pictures on social media. Piles make smiles. You got a whole row, a whole bottom row, like cordwood. People take time stacking them up, right? Yep. Get their dog in place. And then the next thing you know is like, whose birds are whose? Who, are you tagging your birds before the picture? Like, there's all these questions I have of like, why don't 
more people get into duck hunting because it is absolutely the greatest. So be thinking about that and your experiences and how we can not fight this. I want to be an advocate. I want to help people find their confidence and their comfort level in this game of waterfowl hunting. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of the wardens and the, you know, the, the law enforcement out there, I mean, I'll go so far as to say, I think the vast majority of them want to help the sport, want to proliferate hunting. But those who step into a field with the idea that they're not going to leave that cornfield until they give out a couple tickets uh, is something that is realistic and it's wrong. And I think it's something we got to fight, you know, figure out a way to change. I agree. That's what I'm getting at. Because I've been looking, I've been encountered. I've had encounters where I'm just like, whoa. Well, I'll tell you a story whoa. you won't believe. Okay, well, I wanted to come back with your story. So be thinking about the story. We'll be back with part two. Joel, the man, his wife Becky's going to be running for 2022 governor. We're going to talk about Mr. Ted Nugent on the next one. <laughs> He's the greatest. That was cool the other night. That was so cool. This is a great place, Wisconsin. We've had curds. I had cheese curds. I want to go over what cheese curds are. A lot of people don't know what curds are. I want to know what squeaky cheese is. I learned that today. Um, I want to learn a little bit about the Wisconsin culture. This place, I believe, if I remember right, has more bars. You said it has more geese harvested per capita than you say in the country. I think Milwaukee has more bars per capita than any city in America. Does Wisconsin have more bars per capita than any state in America. There's a lot. Every highway. Or I every, believe it does. Every More back, bars than churches. That's every back road I'm on, it's like supper club, bar, bar, grill, boom, boom. It's just like. A restaurant in Wisconsin is a bar. Is a They're bar. a synonymous I want name. to talk about that. I want to talk about fish fries. I want to talk about cheese curds. I want to talk about Bob Euchre. I want to talk about Brewers baseball. I want to talk about Lambeau Field. There's so much culture in Wisconsin and it's beautiful. And there's a lot of waterfowl hunting. I'm Chad Belling. Thank you to meet your maker meat products processing butchering thank you to rigid industries own the night light up your world stay safe out there america thank you for joining us right here at the foul life podcast brand new episodes of the foul life tv benelli's the foul life exclusively airing on the outdoor channel available as of november 15th i can't wait for you to see our final seven episodes check out brand new episodes of this life ain't for everybody podcast and where the pavement in pocket where the pavement ends podcast and please get you a copy of the brand new provider cookbook and our series of 10 dry rubs the provider joel thank you we'll be back with part two tom jake hit that button this is 2 a.m logic the song is called my foul life <laughs>